of the cross, the means by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we want to ask that by your Holy Spirit you cause us to see things we haven't seen before and thank you that your primary goal is application of every bit of your word to us. And so we want to submit to your spirit now to hear what you have to say to us. And Father, we pray, change us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you today. We're glad that you're here with us. We're continuing in the commandments, the Ten Commandments. We're on commandment number six today. It's in Exodus chapter 20. I want to encourage you to turn there. Um, this next week is Pastor Kevin's birthday. He's going to be old on Tuesday. Isn't that wonderful? Circus tall and carnival cute. That's our Pastor Kevin. Isn't that wonderful? So be sure and welcome him to old age for those of you who that is applicable. And um, for those of you that are younger than that, please don't push him off the cliff or pull the banana peel he's already standing on. We're in... Um, <laughs> I'm older than him. Um, we're looking in the Ten Commandments and we have looked some of the things we've talked about. These commandments start by defining our relationship with God. He starts the whole thing by telling them where he gets off giving them a commandment in the first place. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, let me tell you who I am. I'm the one who delivered you from Egypt. And now with that as our starting point, I'm going to give you these commands. And the first four commands deal with our relationship with God. This is how you interact with him. And the, the fifth one is our relationship with our parents, to honor our father and our mother and it's kind of the neck on the funnel that opens, up, opens us up to the opportunities to minister to others. Out of our relationship with God as we have been instructed by our parents, now we can turn and, and minister to other people. And if your parents were not perfect parents, then I would say welcome to the club. <laughs> no, no, nobody has had and nobody has been a perfect parent. Welcome to the sad reality of life. Sucks to be you. Now... If you want to sit there and say, well, my parents were worse than your parents, if that's the contest you want to win, congratulations, you win. Your parents were the worst ones in the room. Is that really how you want to define the rest of your life? We can sit and complain about how difficult things were in the past, or we can turn our focus to the future and determine my children will never have to say that about me. I want to, I'm going to make mistakes. And I, well, I'm not going to. I've already made mine. So they, they, mine are grown and gone, but I have plenty more mistakes to make than they had to me. But raising my kids, I've made my mistakes. But you know, the goal is to look at our kids and say, I will fight in my generation the battles that have been handed to me so that you will not have to fight them. Now, you're going to have to fight your own battles. There will be more battles ahead. Your mom and dad, they're going to do their best, but they're still going to blow it in some areas. You have to have something to talk to your counselor about. Just deal with it. But friends, don't you want to be able to look at your heritage? Don't you be able to want to look at your descendants and say, I gave you better than I received. I want my progeny to be able to look back and say, I'm glad that one lived because in that generation things changed. And there is a, an invitation to godliness in our heritage. It's interesting to me that that the fifth one it has to do with honor your father and your mother. It's almost as if parents are to be the instrument that God uses in our lives to translate a proper relationship that we're to have with Him in the first four commandments into a proper relationships with others as they're expressed in these last five commandments. Parents are almost the filter 
through which we learn to love God and to rightly love others. If you haven't listened to Pastor Kevin's sermon from last week, I would encourage you to do that. He just did an excellent job on dealing with honor your father and your mother. And now as we walk out of that one, as we begin on this sixth one, we find ourselves at the threshold of an enormous savanna of dealing with other people. And these, these last five commandments are kind of the flippers that keep our pinball on the board rather than in some ditch somewhere. And we look at this one in chapter 20, verse 13, which says, very simply, You shall not murder. Four words in our English language, in our English version. You shall not murder. Don't go around killing people. You ought not do that. It's not good for them. It's not good for you. It's not good for society. So don't do it. And so we look at that and say, well, if I can just get home from church today without killing anybody, then I'll have it made. I mean, some of the drivers out here, you want to, right? I might not kill them. I'll give them, I'll give them directions, one-way directions, right? But at least I didn't kill them. And we think if we, can just, if we can just prevent the act, if we can just not kill them, then we have fulfilled the law and everything's going to be fine. But friends, Jesus takes us deeper than that. And not only does Jesus take us deeper than that, the law takes us deeper than that to show us it's not just the act that he's concerned about. It is the wellspring. It's the heart behind the act that he is going to address and many of us look at the law and say well if we can just limit our actions then everything will be okay the pharisees looked at it that way and if we can just limit our actions then we'll be okay but friends they would find ways they would find loopholes and ways to get around and they would allow it for themselves they wouldn't allow it for others we talked a couple of weeks ago about how they got around sabbath day's journey 3500 feet 2000 cubits you could walk on a sabbath day well wherever your food is is your common space and so they would go to the very limit of their their sabbath day's journey the day before and plunk their food down out there so that on sabbath they can go get their food and now they're open to another 3500 feet so if they want to go visit leon in the north they're going to go 3500 feet north and then they can get leon in the next week they're going to go visit harriet to the south and so they'll go that way that's how they got around they found loopholes they wouldn't let anybody else do it but they would sure find loopholes for themselves it's like miles monroe said concerning our justice system they did the same thing they used law to rape justice how, how they could be angry at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day and then turn around and plot his murder the same day, that's just comedy to me. It's, you, you can't heal on the Sabbath, but we're going to go plan how to commit murder on the Sabbath. Okay, that, that makes no sense, but whatever. And we look at this and say, well, if we could just limit the act. But friend, even in the Ten Commandments, he did not limit it to our conduct. When you go down to the Tenth Commandment, verse 17, I had the wrong verse. I printed this out of a Bible program, and it gave me the wrong verse. How's that for terrible? Verse 17, correct? Exodus 20, 17. That one is the last one. It says, thou shalt not covet. Now, and, and then it gives us all these things that we're not to covet. And then it gives us this big umbrella, don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. Well, you, covet is not an act. You can't go up and lay covet upside of somebody's head. You can lay murder upside their head. You, you know, you can adulterate against a person. You can, you can covet something and everybody think you're just as wonderful as everything. You can sit next to somebody and covet. It deals with a thought. It deals with the hidden thing. It deals with something that no one can see. Even in the law, he's dealing with the heart of the issue. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. 
You've heard that one. And even in the law, he is dealing with this. It's not an action, it's a thought, it's a desire. And it's out of those evil desires that conduct erupts. Listen to what he said in Leviticus 19. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You can sit in church and hate the guy sitting next to you and look just as pious and spiritual. But this is the law speaking. This isn't even Jesus yet. He's going to bring us. He's going to remind us this is what it's always been. Where's your heart? You might can change your conduct for a little while, but you can't change your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Don't hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Take no vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people. But here's what I want you to do. Love your neighbor. This is Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Why do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because he's told us to, because he's the Lord. And you know what's interesting about this? When Jesus comes out with, here's the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, they're just all flabbergasted. They're stunned. Wow, that's great. Where'd that come from? That lets us know how far they had run, how far they had sunk from what God had called them to do in the law. He got it out of the law itself. But they had completely lost sight of God wants to deal with us on the inside. As we look at these last five and how they relate to other people, the order is interesting. It starts with life. Don't go killing people. Then it moves to marriage. Don't commit adultery. Then it deals with their stuff. Don't steal. Then it deals with their name. Don't bear false witness. And then it deals with their life altogether. Everything they have, don't covet. It's interesting. It's pretty much similar order of creation. He gave us life first, and then he gave us marriage, and then he gave us something to do in the Garden of Eden. He gave us a place, and he addresses himself to those. So first off, those first three deal with our outward conduct. The fourth one deals with our speech. And the fifth one deals with our heart, what we think. And friends... That's where it all begins because Matthew twelve thirty four says, Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So when Jesus came to him in Matthew chapter 5 and said, You've heard it said, don't commit murder. Well, let me tell you something else. He adds three, three tangents to that, all of which help define murder. He said, I don't want you being angry at people. I don't want you insulting people. And I don't want you name calling. Well, okay, I haven't killed anybody in days. I mean, it's been days since I've killed anybody right? When was the last time you name called? When was the last time you insulted? When was the last time you got angry? Now, dang it. Now all of us are in on this one, right? Because I don't care how spiritual we are. Every one of us has broken this one. Every one of us has broken this one. I had some friends, they lived on Harmony Lane. No, I'm serious. They did. They lived on Harmony. This is hysterical. They lived on Harmony Lane. And their next door neighbor was just he just wasn't right in the head. You know, he's a little bit off balance somehow. Had his whole, the perimeter of his property surrounded by concertina wire. And so when they're pushing their lawnmower, you know, you don't want to scrape up against that, you know. And, and in the middle of the night, he'd take these great big speakers that he went down and bought for this express purpose and put them in a window or door and point them to whatever neighbor he was wanting to irritate that particular night. In the middle of the night, turning the music up as loud as he could and just point it right at him right there on Harmony Lane. I think that's hysterical. You have a neighbor you'd like to see dead? This talks to us. How about that family reunion that you just wish that one wouldn't show up? You know why God gave us family? So that we could understand this commandment. Don't kill. 
That's why I invented family reunions. Every one of us can identify. Every one of us has broken this one. Because every one of us have at some point been unnecessarily angry, been unnecessarily insulting. We've been name-calling the people. Every one of us has broken this one. And so when Jesus deals with this, he takes it down to the root of the issue, which is the heart. What's going on on the inside of you? Jesus looked at him and said, here's, here's the deal. Even in the Old Testament, this is the promise. I'm not here to change your outward conduct. I'm here to change your heart. Because if I can change your heart, your outward conduct will take care of itself all by itself. It's like trying to kill a fruit tree by picking the fruits off of it. That's a dumb thing to do. If you go out there and you pick all the apples off that apple tree, what are you going to have next year? More apples. Don't try and kill the apple tree by plucking the fruit off of it. If you, if you decide to try and kill your peach tree by picking the peaches off of it, bring it to me and I'll take care of those for you. We can do that again next year. If you want to take care of killing the tree, what, what do you need to take care of? You, you, you take care of the root and that tree is going to dry up and the fruit will die of its own accord. And Jesus, John the Baptist looked at him and said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Jesus is standing with a double-bitted axe laid at that root saying, what do you want me to do? Jesus, cut that root, man. I want you to take care of the problem in my life at the very root. It is not my conduct, it is my heart. If you'll change my heart, then all of my conduct will change as a result. And he looks at him in Jeremiah 31 and says, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel. I will put my law inside of them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. In Hebrews 8 and, 8 and 10, it lets us know Jesus is the fulfillment of that. We have that fulfillment in him. With all that being said, how are you doing with murder? Who have you murdered lately? And even the use of the word murder, it's not limited to actual killing. It's, it takes into view the entire process, all of the premeditation, the, the thinking about it, the ideating, the, the wishing it could be done. It deals with all of the process. Even the word deals with it. Now, in saying do not murder, he's not, he's not eliminating uh, capital punishment. He's not dealing with war. He's not dealing with self-defense. The Bible allows, the law prescribes all of those. It allows self-defense in, in Exodus 22 too. Somebody comes at you in the middle of the night, yeah, you kill them, life's hard. They shouldn't ought to have done that. And he deals with war. There are deaths and wars that take place all the time. Now, the war of genocide and the war of crime, it's not allowed in that. No thinking person would allow that, and the Bible does not condone that. What happened in Rwanda and what happened in Kosovo is genocide. That's not the war that God's talking about when he allows war. And capital punishment, when somebody takes their life, that's what he said. Their life is to be taken from them. But this deals with the premeditation, thinking about it, planning a death, as well as causing a death by failure to think about the consequences of your actions, either by carelessness or negligence. This is what he said in Deuteronomy 22. He says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. They lived on their roof. There were stairs up the outside of the building, and they would get up on the roof, and they would have dinner up there. They would lounge up there in the evening. So here's an idea. Build a wall around the perimeter of the house so nobody falls off of it. Because if they fall off of it because of your negligence, your irresponsibility, your carelessness, their blood is on your head. That is also included in this. So pay attention to what you're doing. 
Every culture, just about every culture, has a definition for negligent homicide. If you get into a car in an impaired condition, you get into a car drunk, and you choose to drive anyway, and you end up killing someone, you are going to be typically at the least charged with negligent homicide because you knew your conduct would be detrimental to someone else's health and well-being. It's called negligent homicide, and that's what that's another aspect of what's dealt with here. Pay attention to what you're doing. Here's you an example of negligent homicide. This one just this one blew me away. October 1996, an airplane took off from Lima, Peru. Lima's right on the ocean, so they took off at sea level and didn't get very far out before all of the computers, the gauges, everything started going haywire. Some were giving correct information, some wrong. The tower was giving different information. They didn't know which was which, so just a few seconds in, the pilot aborts the flight. We're turning back around. He thinks he's at 9,500 feet. He flips a hard uh, turn to come back. His wing hits the water. He's not at 9,500 feet. He pulls up out of that, calls into a stall, dumps the thing on its lid, crashes into the ocean upside down, kills all 70 people on board. Who's at fault? So they dig the thing up out of the water, they pull it up, and they start doing inspections, and they find that there's one hole, it's called the static port on the bottom of the fuselage, and that's where just all kinds of information is read, and on that particular airplane, that was it. That was the big one. And when they cleaned the end, they cleaned the air- airplane, somebody had come along and had put duct tape over the static port, So they could clean the plane, and then they're supposed to take the duct tape off, but they forgot to take it off, and then when the pilot did the inspection, he didn't see it up there because it's gray and the fuselage is gray. So they took off. They had no computers. They end up crashing, and they kill everybody. And you know who was liable for that? That poor schmuck of a helper. He wasn't even a mechanic. He was just some schmuck of a helper who was cleaning the airplane and had put that piece of duct tape over that hole and forgotten to take it off. They charged him with negligent homicide. And what he's telling us is, listen, you're going to blow it at some point. You've got to pay attention to what you're doing. Here's you another one. Here's you another example of carelessness or neglect in Leviticus 19. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall not curse the deaf. They can't hear you to defend themselves, so don't go talking bad about them right there in front of them. They can read lips most of the time anyway. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. In other words, if you know that your in-laws are coming over and they're a little bit wobbly in their old age, get the junk off the floor so they have less to stumble over. That's just preparing the way for them. That's what he's talking about. Think about how your actions impact someone else's life. Another way of saying that verse is, thou shalt not be a jerk. When I was 16 years old, I traveled with the Continental Singers, and one night for devotion, our leader said, okay, I want everybody against the walls, and close your eyes. So we all closed our eyes, and he threw a bunch of paper clips out on the floor, and he said, keep your eyes closed, find a paper clip. When you find your paper clip, you're done, you can do whatever you want. So we were on our hands and knees, and people were finding paper clips, and, and then when we get done, he said, now here's what happened. You got down, and you were looking, and it was interesting that some of you, after you found your paper clip, you went and sat down and started talking with other people. You had yours, and that's all you needed. Others of you, you got in the way of people. You'd bump into them, or you'd wait until they were reaching for a paper clip, and then you'd move it out of their way, and so you obstructed their way of getting one. Others of you, you actually got down and helped people find a paper clip. And when it comes to bringing people to Jesus, we're doing the same thing. We either have ours and we're satisfied with it, we're getting in their way, or we're helping them find Jesus. I'm not going to tell you which group I was in. It wasn't one of the good ones. But 
Friends, our conduct impacts the lives and the thoughts of other people. And we need to be aware of that. And murder deals not just with the taking of a life, but with the destroying of someone's life. In all of its aspects, in his book, C, um, C. Scott, M. Scott Peck wrote a book entitled People of the Lie. He had sat as a counselor across from hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people who had had their lives stolen, had their lives killed by, by the foolishness, carelessness, and sinfulness of people around them. And this is how he defined murder in his book, People of the Lie. He said, murder is going far beyond corporal murder. It has to do with the limitation or destruction of various essential attributes of human life, such as sentience, the ability to let them think for themselves. No, you're not allowed to think that. How could you think such a thing? What do you mean a banana tastes good? How can you like the taste of a banana? I can understand the question, but some people like the taste of a banana. Chiquita's happy about it. But to rob them of their sentience, their their thinking, their mobility, awareness, growth, autonomy, and will, you're not allowed to do that. I demand that you do what I want you to do. It is possible, this is what he said, it is possible to kill or attempt to kill one of these attributes without actually destroying the body. Wow, do you squelch the vitality, thought, self-governance, and maturity in others? Do you look at your kids and say, you're not allowed to do that because I won't let you do it? Or are are you allowing them to become who God's called them to be? And friends, there are going to be times when they're going to want to think things that are scary for us. We have to be okay with that. Adam Clark defines it as all actions by which the lives of our fellow creatures may be abridged. And one commentator said that not only does it mean we must not injure another in body, it also means we must not injure them in name. No physician can heal the wounds of the tongue. And friends, the reason he places such a premium, such a value on human life is because of whose image we're created in. In Genesis 1 and over in Genesis 9, he says they're created in God's image. We cannot do this to people because they represent somehow God's image on this earth. And he takes that very personally. And it's interesting. After honor your father, and the first one that he came out with was thou shalt not murder. Don't murder. Think back about after they left the Garden of Eden. What was the order, the sequence of events? Adam and Eve didn't commit adultery. It's not like there were a lot of fish in the sea, right? Christian mingle hadn't been started yet. They didn't commit adultery. Cain and Abel come along, and what do we have now? Cain picks up a rock. He doesn't like that Abel's sacrifice has been accepted and his rejected. And so the first of these that we see after... After they leave the Garden of Eden is Cain took and killed his brother Abel. It's interesting that this one is right after they left. And what's interesting also is that he killed Abel and hundreds of years before God tells Noah, don't kill people in Genesis 9, and thousands of years before it's codified by Moses in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, Cain still is punished for his conduct in killing someone. Why? Because he killed someone who was in the image of God. Now, it's interesting to me that the punishment was fitting to the situation. He did it in complete ignorance of the commandment, but this is a universal reality. Don't kill people in any way, shape, or form. 
And friends, when the Ten Commandments were written and handed down by God, the Bible tells us in Genesis 31 that they were written on tablets of stone by the very finger of God. And when he handed those two tablets to Moses, he came down the hill and he handed them to the people and they were received by people who had hearts of stone. And they looked at those commandments and they said, Oh, I'm going to do my best on this. We'll give it a shot here. We'll, we'll try. But friends, when you're operating out of a heart of stone, when you're operating out of a heart that's dead, a stone is a dead, dead thing. When you're operating out of death, there's no way that you can keep the spirit that's behind these things. And sure enough, they broke them. And so Jesus looks at him in Ezekiel 36 and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a new heart. You don't need more laws. I'm going to, I'm going to fix the real problem. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. But they looked at the laws and they said, don't kill. They realized, they knew if they read the rest of it, they knew that it meant even don't hate your brother. Reason frankly with them. And some of them said, you know, I broke that one. I, I wasn't reasonable. And so they'd bring in their sacrifice. They would offer their sacrifice at the temple and they'd walk out and they'd say, I'm going to do better if it kills me comedy there they walk out and they try to do better but friends law and doing better and trying harder couldn't save them any more than it can save you or me it's tempting to look at this and to determine i'm just going to redouble my efforts to be a nicer person no more wishing my neighbor was dead for the concertina wire no more wishing that i didn't have to go to the Family reunions. Maybe you don't need to go to the family reunions. Quit wishing your relative was dead. Oh, I'm just going to redouble my efforts. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. But friends, your best efforts will be no more effective for you than theirs were for them. Because living by the law, the Bible tells us in Colossians 2, 23, it has no value in restraining sensual indulgence. The law cannot keep your heart from going astray. It's not a call for more legalism not a call for stricter adherence to the law, as good as the law is, because salvation can never come from keeping the law. He tells us in Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Well, why did he give it to us then? He gave it to us to let us recognize there's a deeper problem here, and it's the problem of the human heart. So if I'm not justified by the law, what am I justified by? We are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Friends, the law doesn't justify. It it doesn't cleanse us. It condemns us. (laughs) It's what tells us there's a problem. Paul said in Romans 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. The law cannot cleanse us. It shows us our sin. It's the mirror that we look into and we kind of check our teeth and go, oh, I got some cereal left in there. You don't wash your face in the mirror. The mirror is what shows you where the problem is. And so now, okay, I see there's a problem. Where do I go to get clean? You go to the sink. You go to the cleansing agent. And friends, for us, according to 1 John 1, 7, the cleansing agent is the blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses us from all sins so that in first john 1 9 if you will confess your sins he is faithful and just that he'll forgive you of your sins and he's so good he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness too he gets things around it that you didn't even know were there friends 
Friends, if you just try harder, we look at it and go, if I just try harder, then he'll give me his spirit. Then I'll have peace inside. And Galatians 3, 2, it says we don't get his spirit by obeying the law. Galatians 4, we, we receive his spirit by trust in Christ. Friends, the reality is that without Jesus, your heart is dead. Your, your heart doesn't need more law because it's dead. What it needs is life, and the law does not give life. How do we get life? It tells us in Ephesians 2, 4, but God. And friends, when any verse starts with that, we know something about good's about to happen. Because it doesn't matter what your circumstance, it doesn't matter what your difficulty, but God, the, things are going to change now. Being rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Friend, he starts with love. His motivation is that he loves us. Even, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Friend, if you can be saved by the law, then if you keep the law well enough, then when you get to the judgment seat, you can look at him and say, I don't need you. I took care of this by myself. I, I'm, I'm good enough without you. Friend, if we could be good enough without him, the, the, the cross is an absolute farce. It is a crime of history. If we can do this without Jesus, it is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. But friends, the fact of the cross lets us know we cannot do this by ourselves. And the cross is his invitation to us. Would you come to me and have life? Your heart's dead. Your heart's stone without Jesus. I can make it alive is the promise. Here's the reality. As hard as you try, you don't go to heaven because you're good. And you don't go to hell because you're bad. The problem was there was a separation that came between us and God. And Isaiah 59 says that that separation is sin. Jesus left heaven and he died on the cross to deal with the problem. So the problem's been taken care of. Now the only question is, Jesus Christ, do you know him? Where do you stand with Jesus? He's already dealt with the sin issue. You can either come to him and receive his forgiveness or you can reject him and live in your sin. That's a bad option. But friends, he's given you the ability to choose. And so the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? He is the answer to the problem of sin. It's not trying harder. It's not doing the law better. It's not cutting out all the bad things. It is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And it's not a question of do you know about him. It's not a question of have you been to church. It's a question of do you know him. Because the night before he died, he was praying, John 17, and he looks at the Father in verse 3, and he says, this is eternal life. He gives us the definition, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ, the Son you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Oh, I've done a lot of good things. I've been to church. I've done all kinds of great things. That's not the question. Because in Matthew 7, he says there are going to be a lot of folks that come up to him and say, Oh, Lord, all the great things we did in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And we did a lot of great works in your name. And Jesus said, I'll look at them and I'll tell them, Depart from me. Why? I didn't know you. <laughs> I never knew you. Friends, the, the question is not what do you do? How good are you? Do you keep the law? The question is, do you know Jesus Christ? Oh, but I worked so hard. He told us the parable of the two houses that were being built, one on sand and one on the rock. The interesting thing about that is both of them were working. 
They're both working hard to build a really nice house. But when the storm came, the one that was on the sand crushed and was destroyed because the starting place was wrong. If you think, if you think that by your own goodness you can lift yourself by your bootstraps and prove to God that you deserve to be with Him for eternity, I'm afraid, friends, that that is deception. What the Bible tells us that the only means of grace is through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Now, for many of us sitting in this room, we claim to have already accepted Christ. How many of you wish your neighbor were dead? <laughs> How many of you just hate that person in your family? How many of you hate that coworker? They stole your promotion, didn't they? I'm going to get even with them if it's the last thing, and I'm going to enjoy it. Friends, that is this commandment. You know what we need? We need the continued work of Jesus on the inside of us to bring us real life transformation, genuine, practical change of who I am into who he is. Not just on the outward appearance because the the Pharisees could make it look real good, but Jesus looked at him and said, oh, you look good on the outside, but you are full of dead men's bones on the inside. Genuine, practical change of who I am. How are you doing in that one? Have you, have you said, oh, I'll get saved, I'll give you my life, and that'll be enough. That's, that's enough. That'll get me into heaven. I'm happy with that. Or have you come to him and said, no, Jesus, you're my Lord. I'll do what you tell me to do. This, this person is driving me out of my mind. God, I need help. I need help. I recognize that there's still a part of my heart that's just not right with you. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you please... Continue the work of changing me. Bring me to life in that area also. So that I can... God, let's just start with... I can stand being around them. That would be a good place. And we'll worry about the rest after that. How are you doing when it comes to the real matter of do not murder? As the band comes, we're going to be observing Lord's Supper this morning. We practice what's called open communion here. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, then we invite you to His table. This is the Lord's table. This is not ours to restrict. It's His to invite. And so we invite you to partake with us. The way we do it is that we pass out the bread. We ask you to hold it until everybody has, and then we'll partake together. Then we do the same with the drink. But before we do that, I want to give you just a few minutes. Let's just, let's just see where we're at with God on this thing. Are we willing to say, God, where do you, where do you see work needs to be done? And are we willing to look at him and say, okay, let's do the work. God, change me. I want to know you better. Let's pray. Father, we look at these and go, oh, that's the old law. And, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that one. And think that somehow it's okay for us to be angry, to hate, to insult But, Father, we see not only in the teaching of Jesus but also through the entire law that your concern was with the heart of humanity. Father, we do not want to be satisfied with the outward appearance. God, we ask you, continue the work. Thank you that your promise is you will complete the work that you've begun in us. Thank you for that. Now, Father, as those who claim you as Lord, we want to look at you and say, I surrender to the work that you're doing in my life. Continue to work on me. Father, for those who have never accepted Jesus, I want to 
ask you, would you please reveal yourself to them in terms they can understand? Show them the glory of the invitation you've extended to them. Freedom from sin. Forgiveness of sin. The invitation to declare you as Lord. God, I want to ask you, speak to them in terms they can understand to show them their need for Christ. Let's take just a few minutes to make sure we're right with Him before we take Lord's Supper.